Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Earthly Delights podcast. Today, we have a very special guest who is Professor Guy Standing, who is a professional research associate at SOAS, University of London, and a founding member, an honorary president, co-president of the Basic Income Earth Network, a non-governmental organization that promotes basic income for all. Guy, thanks for doing this. What's the crack? Well, I'm in pretty good shape, except that I've got more work than I've ever imagined having because the whole world has suddenly become interested in the possibility of a basic income. About time, but I think it's very suitable in this time of pandemic and where people are facing chronic insecurities. So I'm very pleased that there's a lot of interest from all over the world, but it means a lot of work for someone like me. So it's a mixed Mm. It's a mixed blessing. I, I really want to get into uh, the universe of basic income and the idea of the precariat. But first, could you tell us a bit about yourself to begin with, to give the listeners an idea of who you are? Well, I'm an economist uh, from a PhD from University of Cambridge, and I've worked in the United Nations for a long time and been a professor at various universities. And I've been doing a lot of work over the last 20 years on the growth of the precariat. We'll talk about that in a minute. And and the growth of what I've called rentier capitalism, the changing nature of capitalism, which is giving more and more of the income being generated to those who possess property of various types. And then I've been for many years promoting basic income. So it's been a very uh, intensive working career I've had, uh, very rewarding in everything except money, and uh, in in many ways, it's it's an extremely extremely interesting life I've been living. But it's very intense at the moment. I can imagine. And can I ask how you first got interested in the area? Well, I date myself because I I was a student at the time when Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan launched their fundamental economic revolution in the 1980s. And at that time, I was convinced that what they were doing would increase inequality dramatically and increase the extent of insecurity experienced by millions of people in all over the world and would lead to a, a changing character of capitalism that would be very unstable, very unsustainable, and ecologically threatening. So all my work has been around those themes. Um, And at the time I became interested, I I was just convinced that these things were going to be happening. And strangely enough, that's basically what's happened. And it's Mm -hmm. fortuitous to some extent. I don't want to be claiming anything beyond that but i've i've long been convinced and i've expressed that in my books and and the articles that many of these things were coming and building up and my latest book um which came out in march but obviously was written last year mm-hmm. and basically that theme of that book is that all of those things that i've been describing the growth of rentier capitalism that the the whole Thatcherite agenda had produced the growth of eight giants. And this is an imagery that draws on a a report, a famous report of 1942 
by William Beveridge, which set the seal for the post-war welfare states in Ireland, in Britain, in, in, in Europe, uh, and in elsewhere, which said that the challenge was to slay five giants. And his giants were, were the basis of the post-war welfare states. They were, they were squalor, they were idleness, they were ignorance. There, there was there was want, and and the essence of of his agenda was that it was a time for revolutions. He put it; those are the words he used in our welfare system. And my argument is that as a result of all the changes that I've been analysing, we have eight modern giants that are blocking the way to a good society. The people who are listening to this are part of. The precariat, probably, we'll talk about that in a moment, facing mm-hmm. these eight giants that are threatening any prospect of a good society after this pandemic. And the eight giants are inequality, insecurity, debt, huge debt, stress, what I call precarity, which is feeling like a supplicant. You feel you don't have rights, the mm-hmm. threat of automation. The big, big one is the threat of extinction, the the ecological crisis rushing towards us. And the final giant is neo-fascist populism, which we're seeing in the United States with Donald Trump, we're seeing with Brexit, we're seeing with various characters on the political stage that are extremist, that a generation ago we'd have laughed out of court, and now they're, they're threatening a good society. And what I've argued from that book is that it would only take a trigger uh, to cause the giants to overwhelm us and create a, a systemic crisis. And it's I, I regard the pandemic as that trigger, a bit like the shooting of the Archduke in August 1914 that started the war but wasn't really the cause of the war. I think those eight giants make this pandemic slump that we're facing now much, much worse than if it had not existed in the time of rentier capitalism. And that that's the essence of my thesis. And do you think that the pandemic is rapidly changing people's minds about the idea of a universal basic income and workers' rights and all of the beasts that you mentioned? Yeah, because let me, before I answer your question directly, James, let me just say that that one of the consequences of this rentier capitalism, this changing character of capitalism, has been the growth of a new class structure. And the new class structure has a plutocracy of disgustingly rich multi-billionaires at the top, then a sort of salariat, people who still have employment security, pensions, and things like that. And the old industrial working class is disappearing, but you have a precariat that's growing instead. And the precariat consists of millions of people in Ireland, like everywhere else, who are living bits and pieces lives. Mm-hmm. They don't have stable careers, their occupational identity, but they're subject to forms of 
rental exploitation as well as low and fluctuating incomes, and they feel that they're losing the rights of citizens. They feel that they don't get due process in the legal system. They don't get access to the commons to give them a sense of security in society. They don't belong to communities of viable lifestyles. And this precariat is really exposed to a shock because most people in the precariat are living on the edge of unsustainable debt. And that's before the pandemic. And the pandemic, the pandemic has merely tipped millions into situations where they can't service those debts that they've got. They can't maintain an adequate lifestyle. And they're feeling very angry, very insecure, increasingly stressed. And in those circumstances, we have to say we need to build a new income distribution system. We can have a market economy. You can have a situation where people can be moving around, developing themselves, doing work, different forms of work. But at the base, we need basic security. Mm -hmm. Basic income is the only way to do that. What we have to do is find the mechanisms, and it's not too difficult to do so, to enable us to afford and pay for a basic income that every individual, every man and every woman should have a modest amount, which wouldn't be a large amount to start with, but an amount that, that at the end of the day you could say, tomorrow I'm going to be able to pay for my food. And the day after, I'm going to be able to pay for my food. But if you have a situation where people are chronically insecure and facing uncertainty, unknown unknowns, that something could hit you tomorrow, an accident, an illness, some mistake you make, and then it's disaster. This mm. is incredibly stressful. And it's, it's what we've got at the moment is a society that has no resilience. Resilience is a fundamental human need. And if we don't have basic security and a sense of resilience to withstand a shock, to be able to deal with a shock, to be able to cope with it and recover from it, if we don't have that, then the mental pressures are destructive of the psyche, of the physical capacities of all of us, and we become so stressed that more and more people become suicidal and more and more people find their immune systems break down. They have cardiac problems. They have hypertension. They have blood pressure problems that stem not from any physical defect that they have, but from a societal stressfulness that undermines our resilience. And that is what we've got today. So we're seeing what's called deaths of despair. Never before have we had industrialized countries where the average life expectancy of middle-aged people has actually been declining. In the United States, it's declined quite a lot. Ordinary whites, not just the blacks, it's whites as well. It's not a racial thing, although the, you know, the terrible racial nonsense over there is, is something we're all angry about. But it is something affecting all of us. And it is something that is so alarming that we have no excuse to let the politicians 
tried to restore the status quo ante, tried to put back yesterday, because yesterday was bad. And we need at this stage to be open-minded, thinking creatively, constructively, and being active as citizens. And I believe a basic income is feasible. We've done pilots all over the world. We know it works. We know it improves health. We know it improves nutrition. We know it improves people's confidence and sense of altruism. So that that there is no excuse for those politicians to be scornful of moving in that direction. That is why I think today a majority of people, particularly young, educated people, get it. And that, I think, is enormously exciting. That was a wonderful guy. You've answered maybe four or five of my questions already. Um, I saw in a recent interview, you said, I'm not calling for a revolution. I'm calling for a revolt. You know, we need to say no. And I wanted to ask, do you think that many of us are afraid to say no firmly? I know you meant like it's true that there is a, a rising amount of people that are saying, yeah, we need a basic income and we need these things. But I, I would like to know what you think is behind the reluctance of some people to back this uh, idea of a universal basic income. Do you, do well, you think that they, they risk losing, they, they're afraid of losing what they currently have for something possibly better? Well, I think we have a situation where most people who go into politics and try to become politicians, many of them have spaghetti backbones. They don't take leadership. I cannot tell you how many politicians and political leaders have told me in private that they believe a basic income. They they don't need to tell me that. They don't. They've told me that. They say, but we don't know how to come out in favor. And you say, well, yeah, just do it. And, and it is alarming. The they they fear that they would get mocked or not be able to defend it. And they take the safe course. Therefore, they play a fairly conservative, but small C position. I think it's up to us, because it's up to us to give those politicians stronger backbones by demanding change, by putting pressure on people and being active ourselves. When politicians see that enormous numbers of us are demanding change. We don't want to go back to the status quo ante. It wasn't good. It was resulting in all the things I've been talking about. And therefore, buck up. Take a courageous position or get off the political stage and leave others to come instead. And I think I think it's the it's the 25s to 35-year-olds who've got to take the lead here. Someone like me can try to give intellectual backing and my books I hope do that but it's actually up to everybody to stand up and say hey hey we want better than, than what existed before we want basic security tomorrow I'm going to be talking about the ethical foundations of basic income we believe in common justice we believe in more freedom and we believe we must have resilience and security let us move in that direction. We won't get it overnight, but we've got to move in that direction. And I, I think it's basically up to us. It is up to us. 
Thanks, thanks for that, guys. <laughs> Very motivational. I, I really want to get into the nuts and bolts of uh, UBI. But before, I'd love to know what you think of the 40-hour week. Uh, because recently we had a, a researcher, a happiness researcher called Dr. Christopher Boyce. And he left his post because he felt that the 40-hour week didn't allow him enough time to meet his other needs. And I was wondering... What, what what's your position on that well i think personally that the working time issue came into the forefront of thinking uh, in the industrial age when people went to factories and they went clocked in early in the morning or the mines or whatever and then they clocked out late in the day and the hours of day hours of labor had to be shortened because people were literally dying early dying of exhaustion and it was a it was a stultifying thing and the, the liberation came for fighting for a shorter working week and i would have been at the forefront demanding that but it's increasingly irrelevant today more and more of us are doing work that is not labor work that is outside the workplace, whatever that might be, and outside labor time. I believe in a more flexible way of working. I think one of the great virtues of a basic income is it would be paid to every individual, regardless of their work status. And therefore, it would enable more of us to spend more of our time doing the forms of work that are not counted in our statistics, our economic statistics. And most importantly, it would give a value to care work, caring for our our children, caring for our elderly relatives, caring for our community. It is a scandal that our national income statistics only regard paid labor as the work that is counted in national income. So that means that if if I hired a woman as a housekeeper, if I had the money to do so, and she was working as a housekeeper, national income goes up. If we then got married and she continued to do exactly the same work, national income goes down and employment goes down. That's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. We should value the work that is done rather than the status in which it's done. More and more of us spend more time doing forms of work that we have to do to keep up to date, to keep networking, to keep retraining, et cetera, et cetera. So I think your your colleague who talked about a 40-hour week, I mean, I probably work 60-hour weeks many weeks, <laughs> but, but, but that's because I believe in what I'm doing. And a variety of of activities, I think we have to enable people to make better choices. Some people might want to work 60 hours when they're a five-year period because they want to build up to the capacity to take time off to to learn and do new things, et cetera, et cetera. Great. Others would like to work steadily 30-something hours in a job. 10 hours doing something else, etc. That's up to them. It should be up to them. One of the virtues of moving into a system where we have a basic income as an anchor is it would enable us to make those choices without facing too much of a threat by doing so. 
And, and I think that the 21st century has to become much more flexible in that sense, much more mature, because all of us want to do work to improve our lives, all but except a tiny minority that we f- should feel sorry for rather than condemn, because they're missing out. More of us want to build ourselves, make better lives for our children, make it possible that I can keep my elderly mother in, in comfort. That's the normal human condition. So I hate this moralistic policy, uh, social policy, of putting conditionalities and saying they only get benefits if they do X, Y, and Z. This is, this is pathetic. It's pathetic because it's treating people in a, in a derogatory way. So we have to really think about time and how we use time in, in, a, in a more mature, enlightened way. And I think the educated part of the precariat coming out of universities and colleges understand that. And that's why they don't go back to the old social democratic laborist traditions. They're looking for a new politics of paradise, as I've called it. And that I think is great. And, and they will be the ones who are defining the new politics. They'll be green. They'll be ecological. They'll be wanting to be creative in their work. They want to develop themselves, explore alternative ways of living, revive the commons. This, this is a new agenda. But it's going to depend, as I said earlier, on us, on all of us. Having courage, having courage. Guy, can I ask, what would you say to the average person who says, oh, I value the work that nurses do, but the thing is, I can see that I make, you know, 80,000, I contribute 80,000 to my company, and that's why I have my wages, and it's harder to do so for nurses. Do, can, do you foresee a way that we could act or to be, to reach a better place in terms of being able to really value these things, like the work that nurses are doing? Well, I think one of the one of the few beneficial consequences of this pandemic and slump is that we are realizing that a lot of people who get low incomes are doing forms of work that are much more valuable than many people who are making fortunes. And the the notion of essential work and essential workers is going to have ramifications for thinking about work in general and the value that we place on work and on people. My my real uh, concern is that we need to dismantle rentier capitalism. What that means is that we have to lower the returns to the ownership of property as the first first and fundamental need. It, it is revolting that in Britain, and it's not alone in this, in Britain, the financial assets are worth 1,000% of national income. So that you're making money from money to, the, to an absurd and obscene degree. It's revolting that the value of private wealth has risen from 300% of national income to 700% because of asset inflation and because property values, not, not just 
physical property, but financial and intellectual and other forms of property have been shooting up relative to the returns to labor. And in every country in the world, except the most most abjectly poor countries, the share of national income going to those who perform labor has been declining and declining for the past 30, 40 years. It's not something unique to any one of us, any country. It's generic. It's in the United States, it's in Japan, it's in Britain, it's in Europe, etc. And that means that our wages are going to continue to stagnate. It won't be reversed as long as globalization continues, and I think it must, because the incomes in places like China and India have a long way to grow before they put downward, put upward pressure on our wages. So our wages will continue to decline, sadly, but inevitably, while the profits going up and the incomes from property have been going up. So what we have to do is find the mechanisms to recycle the incomes being gained in rents. We call them rents in economics, but it doesn't just mean rents from property, but it means rental incomes that are gained by a minority. We have to find ways of recycling that. So with this new income distribution system means that everybody shares in the growth of wealth. And I think that means thinking very differently from the last century, where you could expect that returns to hard work and more skilled work would be the way that incomes were distributed. But that's no longer the case. And I think that that is why people really have to think think out of the box, think, think differently, be up to date. And and being up to date means looking at why we have a plutocracy of multi-billionaires alongside huge numbers of paramedicals, para-teachers, all the sort of auxiliary groups in the precariat who are making pittance. Now, that is inexcusable. I'm sorry, it's inexcusable. And we should not be approaching it as if it's something that we should accept as normal. It isn't normal. It should not be accepted as normal. And and while I am totally in favor of seeing nurses and doctors and teachers and cleaners and everybody in the precariat having higher earned incomes, the main way we're going to tackle this problem of income insecurity is to recycle more of the capital income that is being generated. And there are ways of doing it. And the basic income is a fundamental way of doing so. And it's not the only way. Uh, We need to do other things as well. It's not a panacea, but it's a situation now where we have to have a revolution in our minds. And this revolt I'm talking about is saying, look, we must say no. We must say enough. Change. Change. Or we're going to have a social breakdown. We're going to have more social violence coming up. We're going to have more Occupy movements. We're going to have more of what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, which is partly, of course, about race, but is also a reflection of the insecurities, just like the Tottenham riots uh, of 2011 were partially about the killing of a black man in Tottenham, but partly was a reflection of the precariat blowing, blowing up because... 
of insecurities and stresses were getting on top of us. So I, I think that this is a pivotal moment. And every time we have a social explosion like we've been seeing in the past two weeks, we must see it as part of a systemic crisis. There have been other murders of black men by policemen that didn't lead to what's happening at the moment. Mm. But this is a reflection of a system that is in meltdown. And we are very angry about a number of related things, and that's one of them. And I think the treatment of people as equals, rather than some people as supplicants that we show pity towards by giving a bit of charity, is shocking. We have to reverse the charity state. We have to have a new income distribution system that's perfectly compatible with a market economy, perfectly compatible with incentivizing genuine production. So I, I, I think that a revolt is a better term than revolution. We have too much historical baggage with the term revolution. Guy, do you think that these measures can only work uh, comprehensively if they are done almost globally? Because otherwise, if you... For instance, in Ireland, we have quite a low corporation tax and we attract some uh, cor- yep, corporations for that. that. <laughs> you know, I'm sure you're familiar. Um, well, I'm very familiar you, with it. I'm very familiar. Yeah. A double don't, R. <laughs> don't, don't you think for a universal basic income to happen uh, like comprehensively for you know, continents across the globe that you need to get rid of these you know, quote-unquote tax havens like in Switzerland no, I, and I, the Cayman I, Islands? I, and, I think tax havens are uh, a modern disgrace that is due to the, the rentier capitalism being the global the global system. I, I think we've got to tackle tax havens and take and tackle uh, people who are benefiting from using tax haven to avoid and evade uh, the taxation that the ordinary citizens have to pay. And I, I deplore. Uh, sort of beggar my neighbor uh, tax uh, policy, which allows one country to benefit because it draws headquarters of, of corporations to its shores by by dragging down taxation of capital. I think that that is a, a deplorable model, but I think it's got to the end of its tether in the sense that we've got to find other ways of recycling the capital so that they make sure that society gains and the precariat gains uh, from it. And, and, and I, to get the gist of your first part of your question, I think it is feasible for one country to introduce a basic income and change its fiscal policies, phasing out subsidies to corporations, for example, phasing out subsidies the landowners, for example, building a system where we have carbon taxes because the polluters must pay and using the carbon tax to build a fund to help pay for the basic income. That's that's another part of the, the new way of looking at things. If we move in that direction, one country can do it. If one country does it, I believe there will be a domino effect. I believe very quickly other countries will say, hey, if they can do it in Ireland, we can do it here. 
they can do it in British Columbia, we can do it here. So the, 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 the domino effect, I think, will come. I'm quietly encouraged that in strange places, they are now saying, in order to get out of this pandemic, we need a basic income. And I think that's absolutely right, because I am totally convinced that as long as some groups in our societies are facing chronic insecurity, all of us will face chronic insecurity because the vulnerable will continue to be vulnerable to disease, social illnesses, to second or third round of COVID-19 and other viruses that are coming down the line because we've allowed our ecological system to decay. They're all interrelated. And as long as some groups in Ireland are insecure, the pandemic will not be over. It will come back. And the excess deaths and the excess mental breakdowns will exceed the numbers who are dying from COVID by a considerable amount. And we must allow for the fact that the morbidity rate, the, the, the probability of having severe illnesses or incapacities is going up as we speak because huge numbers are facing the stress of being chronically insecure and not having the resilience to cope with it. And if I were in their situations, I am sure I would be no different. And therefore, we have to realize that this is a matter of compassion too. The Irish have always been proud of having a sense of compassion. And right now, we need it in spades. And that, I think, is where we stand today. This is music to my ear, guys. Guy, I really appreciate this. But I do have to play devil's advocate. And the argument that I've heard uh, often in Ireland and in other countries is, uh, if we increase the tax uh, to corporations considerably, Apple and Google will say, oh, sorry, I'm just going to go to another place. And then w- we won't have these corporations to tax to generate this income. Well, I, I, I think actually if that were the case, you would actually benefit from having less exposure to Facebook and, and, and all the rest of it. But, but leaving that aside, that facetious point aside, I, I think we've got to find ways of changing our tax system. I don't believe corporation tax is a very effective way. I think we need a digital data use uh, levy, for example. Every time you and I go onto our computer, we are giving data for free to those corporations who use our data for various reasons in ways we might not like but also to make billions in the advertising that are targeted to us subliminally and so on. I believe that there should be a digital data levy which would raise revenue in a different way and basically be based on the income being generated from us supplying free free labor, free time. And, and I believe that there are many other forms of taxing the use of the commons. That's the main theme of my book called Plunder of the Commons. We've been losing our commons. They've been privatized, commodified, 
colonialized in a sense by private equity and so on from the United States, who are making money from taking our commons. Large parts of our towns and cities now belong to private corporations who are making money from taking it. And even in the city of London, large parts are owned by private foreign equity, which is ridiculous. We need to have levies on the privatized ownership of our commons. The same with carbon taxes. We need high carbon taxes, but by themselves, they're aggressive. They would increase inequality and they're not be popular. But here I'm speaking from you to you from Switzerland, where we have a wealth tax and a carbon tax, but it's recycled to the people. So people realize that, yes, they're paying it, but it's recycled so that people have a modest tax rebate, which helps in pay their bills and so on. So mm. I think we've got to think a fiscal policy that is changed. I think it's revolting that under the uh, common agricultural policy, billions of euros are given each year to landowners. So major landowners are given subsidies by the state with millions of euros or pounds, uh, but doing nothing. I mean, I like to give this example in, in Britain, partly because I love saying the name, but the, the largest landowner is the Duke of Buclo. And the Duke of Buclo inherited 277,000 acres of prime land around Britain. Not a small amount. And he only inherited that 277,000 acres because he happens to be the 10th descendant of an illegitimate child of Charles II. So he's done not a single day's work for that 277,000. But since he came into the ownership of, of those acres, he's received from the state over eight million pounds of subsidy, not for doing anything, but to help him be able to maintain the land. Well, I mean, this to me is part of fiscal policy, which should be scrapped tomorrow morning. It's ridiculous because you could use that money. And there's a hell of a lot of Irish landowners who are getting uh, profits from that. So they haven't done a day's work for it. They may work hard, but they haven't done the work for that money. They were given it because they own land, not because they produced X, Y, and Z. And, and for me, tax policy is not just about putting up income tax or corporation tax. It's about saying phase out subsidies that are regressive, that are increasing inequality, that aren't earned and change the nature of the tax system. So you tax bads, not goods, and you tax unearned income, not earned income. So we, again, this is another, another area, another sphere of our society where we need to think radically at a time when we are facing a radical threat it is, it is systemic threat, and that is an opportunity, a time 
when thoughts that might be seemed extreme or you know, radical or beyond beyond fantasy suddenly become why not why not we've got to. and i think i think that your point about you know if we tax corporation tax at a higher rate they'll all rush off where are they going to rush to i mean then then to me is is being cowed into not being courageous, being cowed to think the plutocracy, the Donald Trumps and everything have all the power. They only have the power if we surrender, if we don't have the courage to revolt. We don't have the courage to stand up and say, F off. And I think I think that that courage is growing in the precariat. I've been asked to speak at over 500 places in the past five years or so about the precariat. My book has been translated into 24 languages. So I every single day I get emails every single day from places all over the world. Today it's been I had a long one from Uruguay, uh, all about the precariat in Uruguay. And I've had several others from Hong Kong, etc. This is a global thing. And the young are not going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with it, and nor should they, nor should they. They may be condemned, perhaps by their parents, perhaps by their teachers. Don't take notice. Don't be violent. Don't be harmful to others. Be citizens. But we must participate. That's why I support the Extinction Rebellion, 100%. Mm. 100%. Okay? People say, oh, yeah, they're extreme methods. Never mind. You wouldn't be taking any notice if they weren't taking strong methods. That's yeah. We either hold on, say, yes, yes, can I sign a petition? Can I sign a petition? <laughs> and then go home and have a drink. That is not the way we're going to get change. We're going to get yeah. change by demanding it, okay? And we're going to get change by being awkward and saying F off. Not necessarily in that way, I hope. I wouldn't want to offend people, but that we must have more cor- uh, courageous Approaches, and I'm I'm actually I'm actually quietly confident that we're seeing we're seeing some fantastic people emerging and taking taking courageous steps, personally courageous steps. Some of them pay penalties for themselves and their families, and 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 you have to salute them. But uh, we need we need courage. Yeah, it's a it's a good point because I was only saying to my friend last night that one of the main reasons why I respect the Extinction Rebellion is that a lot of the, the people coming from Extinction Rebellion are quote unquote educated and quote unquote have things to lose. Absolutely. You know, they absolutely they could have, yeah. Absolutely. And and, and you know that's sorry, true. continue. I mean that that's true because I mean if you think about the ecological crisis you realize that not during this pandemic fortuitously uh, because fortuitously because some good things are happening in bird life and and insect life and and even in the sea but in in longer term developments we have a hell of a crisis rushing towards us where species are disappearing where lifestyles are going to be disappearing where the ecological ecosystems are collapsing i'm writing a book with my eldest son at the moment called the blue commons where we're seeing 
the incredible uh, commodification and privatization of the resources in the seas and the depletion of the fish stocks, the depletion of ecosystems, the loss of birds, the loss of the capacity of, of mangrove swamps and things to reproduce life and how viruses spread when you when you crumble the ecosystems of the world by exploiting them by making profits by trying to justify it by increased economic growth rates economic growth rates which are measured in de depleting resources rather than replenishing resources we need to think very differently and the extinction rebellion as you say is actually being led by people who are very educated about what's happening and we should all be educated about what's happening take your niche take whatever area you think is most interesting look at it see what's happening that's why i wrote this book plunder of the commons because when you see it as a commons you can realize that we we're losing so many aspects of our commons the aspects that are fundamental to a good society our parks our waterways our libraries our social amenities our, our dales and moors they're all being under threat and we rely on them at every stage of our life we rely in different ways on access to the commons we need a revival of the commons and that for me is something that people across the class spectrum a class across the political spectrum can actually understand and and i'm again quietly confident that once this rescue phase of this pandemic is over we're going to see campaign to revive our commons and i i think that will be enormously exciting me too me too uh, for the listeners guy who who yeah i like the sound of this universal basic income could you tell them some of the results that you found in your pilots in india and the situation in alaska just to give them a better idea of yeah. what really can happen the idea is that you give each individual man and woman equally and paid individually it's very important particularly for women we found that among the things that happen is that there's a reduction in domestic violence and women uh, who has been subject to abusive relationships and financially dependent can escape that because they know that at least they've got their basic income on which they can rebuild their lives but the pilots we've done and we've done them in Africa we've done them in India as you mentioned we've done them in in Canada and and ongoing in other countries and I've summarized that in the basic in the, the battling eight giants book all of them have roughly the same uh, outcomes more in some countries and less in others basically what we've done is provide every individual in communities a whole communities it's important that with an unconditional basic income not very high maybe one third of subsistence we'd like to pay higher but that's what we've paid and what you and you don't apply any conditions you pay it in kind you or i mean cash and it's paid into bank accounts that are opened you can do that even in places like india once there's an incentive to open a bank account they do so 
And then what we've found, we've reported the results in books and articles and so on. Once they're introduced, you see improvements in nutrition, better diets for children in particular. What we found is that the improvements for young girls is much more than for young boys because often in poor communities, boys are given preferences. But when you've got a basic income that's paid individually, half amount paid to the children as for the adults, but individually, then you see improvements in nutrition. You see improvements in health, a reduction in ill health, and an increase in ability to pay for medicines and maintain medical treatments to the completion. We see uh, improvements in schooling attendance because people can afford pay for shoes and books and things to go to school. And we see improvements in schooling performance. We've seen improvements in women's status. Women get the same amount as a man. And as they had lower incomes beforehand, that means it's a higher percentage increase for them. And their status improves. And very, very importantly for critics, in our pilots and in other pilots around the world, every single one has shown there is not a reduction in work. There is an increase in work, particularly in low-income communities, because people are able to have the energy, they're able to get to the training, they're able to pay for transport, they're able to buy petty means of production and raw materials. They are able to be more energetic. And it is completely fallacious to say that if we had a basic income rather than our targeted means-tested benefits, as in Ireland and the UK, there would be a reduction in the incentive to work. That's wrong. It's completely wrong because what a basic income does is say, you get X or Y in terms of a monthly basic income as a right, right? And you will be taxed at the standard rate of tax of any income you earn from jobs, right? At the moment, we have what's called means-tested benefits, which are targeted only to the poor. That means two things. One is you have to determine who is poor, who is not poor. And therefore, if somebody who is poor, who gets a benefit and becomes non-poor by doing some work, they lose benefits. That means they face what's called a poverty trap, where they're actually facing a marginal tax rate of 80% or more. A middle-class income, a middle-income earner would never tolerate a marginal tax rate of 80%, but that's what we see with the precariat today. And it, and it also means there's a, there's a tendency to encourage people to go into the shadow economy because they'll be penalized by, by, by taking any low-wage job. So what we've found is that it increases work, it increases output, and it reduces inequality. So in a sense, you've got a, a systemic transformative potential. What I believe is that it's not a pandemic. It's not a, a pandemic, and it's certainly not a pandemic. It, it, it's, it's not something that's going to cure everything. It's not a panacea. It is a, it is a transformative tool 
that requires other transformative institutional changes. We need stronger collective community voice to protect the vulnerable. Otherwise, they're always going to be vulnerable. We need other institutional changes to make sure we have access to justice fairly. <coughs> Excuse me. But, but as essentially, we need a basic income to make all that possible. Yeah, and I love what you say, Guy, about the idea that, like a good society should surely want everybody to, ha to have security or at least a chance to develop themselves. You know, um, I wanted to ask, Guy, you're a very inspirational and enthusiastic person. I wanted to ask, are there ever days, because I have some friends that are economists and sometimes they just have days also where they think, I don't know, like I'm not that optimistic, I haven't seen this research or haven't seen this. Like, are there ever days where you kind of lose a bit of hope tempor temporarily? Well, I, 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 I have been working on and advocating basic income for 30 years. So there have been many days, many times where uh, it's been pretty dispiriting and pretty lonely, if you like, intellectually, because mm. for a long time we, we set up Bian, the Basic Income Earth Network, and everybody can join. Everybody can join. We have some good Irish members, some great people in, in it who've always been very passionate in their support. But everybody can join. And there have been many times when I've been uh, down and not so much pessimistic, but angry that we can't get through. We can't somehow convince enough people uh, to support or to fight for what, what we believe in, what I believe in. I, I can honestly say that I'm feeling quietly uh, confident I would say we have a 50% chance of seeing a basic income uh, within the next several years. I, I believe that we have moral high ground. I believe that when people think about it, they think that this makes sense. And I'm enormously encouraged that a majority of people in opinion polls now are in favor of basic income. If you told me that 10 years ago, the time of the financial crash, when it was obvious it was needed then, that we would today have that degree of support, I would have said, pinch me, give me, give me another glass of something. <laughs> uh, but I, I think today the precariat is so angry and so frightened, if you like, and with good reason, that they're prepared to stand up. And that's why I feel that pessimism is not, this is not the time for pessimism. This is the time for, um, for putting, putting one's best foot forward. And, and if, you, if you want to shout at me and say talking rubbish, talking utopia, talking that, blah, 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 I, I will accept that willingly. Not saying you're going to, but uh, I feel much more... Uh, emboldened because of the degree of understanding of many many people and and that's what we've got to do we've got to we've got to give each other the courage um work together um form networks we have none of us have an excuse for being idle about it none of us have an excuse for sitting back and moaning without standing up and participating in 
public action in, in working towards a better future. And I think this pandemic is bringing it home to uh, to many of us that we have to devote our energies to making sure we don't go back to the status quo ante. We go forward. I'm, I know you're a super busy guy. I just have a few more questions. One is, I'm sure your mind has w- wandered to what it could look like if we implement a universal basic income in five or 10 years. I'm sure your mind has wondered to what it would look like 10 years or 15 years into a universal ba- basic income society. Could you give us like a, some ideas of what you think that would look like? In- well, as it happens, at the beginning of this year, I was asked, by the World Economic Forum, the Davos crowd, uh, to do precisely that. And I I wrote a paper and gave a talk uh, giving my my sort of prediction of 2030. That was the the task I said. Imagine you're in 2030. And I imagined that we had established a commons capital fund in a country, and built it up with the levies on, on uh, you, uh, comp- compensating for the loss of our commons, compensating for gar- carbon taxes and greenhouse emissions and so on, building up a capital fund a little bit like the Norwegians have done or the Alaska Permanent Fund was meant to do, and from that paid out to increasing amounts as common dividends, as basic incomes. And I saw a, a, a future in which the Commons Fund was investing only in ecologically sustainable uh, industries and where the profits were fair profits on investments, not on debt, artificial debt, and were built to help in care work, forms of work, around cooperatives, cooperative existence, a replenishment of our ecology, our environment, and a more convivial system in which fundamentally we were resurrecting what the ancient Greeks had, which is deliberative democracy in the sense that we had time put aside to participate in political reflection, political education, education about what is valuable in society, a a sense of what the Greeks called shole, skole, which is a combination of leisure and education, real education, not schooling, which is preparing you for jobs, 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 but preparing you to be a citizen, preparing us to be living a slow time movement, living slow food, living to watch the butterflies, living in a more convivial, relaxed way where everybody had that, not just the idle rich. We have a situation where the leisure of the elite is excessive and the leisure of the precariat is non-existent. They have to grab beers, sandwiches, watch football, collapse in front of televisions, drink more, because they haven't got the time in which to develop themselves and their communities, their loved relationships, and so on. We feel stressed. 
we feel stressed. And stress is eating away at our capacity to live a good life. And I think the vision of a future should be one in which we say, let's have control of our time. Let's have respect for our environment. Let us focus on reproductive work rather than pouring tea for bosses, working down a factory or whatever, building a life and building our, our relations with our, our loved ones. Nobody regrets spending time looking after their mother. Most of us spend much of our life being furious that we didn't have the capacity to spend more time looking after our mothers. And that, I think, is a shocking indictment of the way we're forced or obliged to work and live. We have to get control back into the way we construct our lives and the way we interact with one another. And I think this pandemic is giving us a pause in which many of our thinkings are going to be challenged. And many people will come out of it saying, hey, 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 we're going to go for change now. And on that note, I'd like to end because to me, that's what it's all about. I couldn't agree more. Thanks a million, Guy. Uh, just uh, when you're not writing books and when you're not making speeches and you're not writing papers, how do you look after your well-being? Well, I play as much tennis as I can and as much swimming as I can. And uh, I, I, I'm one of those strange people who love cricket. Uh, okay. <laughs> and, and I, you know, I love music and it's, I've just done something with Massive Attack, uh, which I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing what they produce, incidentally. Wow. <laughs> and, and for me, it's, it's, uh, it's having an enlightenment life that we should be thinking about. Everybody who has enthusiasms, we should all have enthusiasms, should be fortunate enough to be able to indulge in those things. And, and I, I mean, I'm fortunate. It may end tomorrow morning. Uh, but but for me, it's very important to be able to have a balanced life. You take your work seriously, but don't take yourself too seriously. And I think that's what life should be all about. It's beautiful, Guy. Thank you so much. Uh, for people who want to know, learn more about Guy, I will provide many links to the websites, the books, the talks, all of them. Um, I really appreciate your, time, appreciate your time, Guy. Thanks so much. Thanks very much. Good luck to you all. Cheers. All the best. Cheers. Thank you. Bye.